Good afternoon and welcome to Strategies for Leveraging Supplemental Staffing as a Solution to In-House Talent Gaps, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Galen Healthcare Solutions. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time. And through the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time, first we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Susan Carmen, VP and CIO at Mohawk Valley Health System, Chuck Podesta, CIO with Renown Health, and Matt Woodside, VP of Professional Services with Galen Healthcare Solutions. And then we will have our audience Q&A. So let's jump right in. Lots of fun stuff to talk about. Susan, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. Um, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Susan Carmen. I'm the VP and CIO at Mohawk Valley Health System, as uh, Anthony just mentioned. Uh, we're an integrated delivery network, meaning we have hospitals, amb- ambulatory sites. We have long-term care, palliative care, and pretty much kind of runs the, the, the whole gamut. Um, we currently have two hospitals that are merging into one brand new hospital uh, in 2023, and it's going to be one of the, the first new hospitals in New York in um, more than 25 years. So it's very exciting. Very good. Excellent. Uh, Chuck? Yes, uh, thank you, Anthony. Thanks, everybody, for taking time out of your busy day. Hope you find this uh, informative. I'm Chuck Podesta. I'm the CIO of Renowned Health and we know Nevada, we are the only integrated delivery system in Nevada, uh, and it's pronounced Nevada, not Nevada. <laughs> I learned that early on in my tenure. Um, I've been here uh, uh, nine months now. Uh, we also did an affiliation with um, the University of Nevada, Reno Medical School. So we're rapidly becoming a, an, acad- an academic medical center as well. Um, so uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Very good, Chuck. Thank you. Matt? Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Um, Health Galen Healthcare started in 2005. We've been around for about 17 years. Uh, we're a healthcare-focused, full-service product uh, group. I've been here since 2010. I'm, as Anthony mentioned earlier, Vice President of Services, responsible for our professional and technical service teams. Uh, Galen's been a uh, best-in-class award winner for a few years now, including health IT staffing and support, clinical optimization, uh, recently best overall implementations firm. Uh, we've won uh, or been recognized by Modern Healthcare as one of the best places to work for a couple of years now. Uh, it's great to be here with you. As Chuck said, I hope everyone enjoys the time and learns something. Very good, Matt. All right. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Susan, we're going to start with you. Do you feel more pressure around around staffing than you have in the past? I definitely do. Um, I was really lucky in the beginning during COVID where um, I didn't lose uh, very many staff members. I had a couple of retirements, but for the most part, I was one of the only areas that didn't have any turnover. Unfortunately, uh, what's happening right now, well, fortunately and unfortunately right now, it's becoming a global marketplace. 
there's a lot of remote positions, especially for healthcare IT and other forms of IT. So it's allowed our staff members to really have a lot more opportunities. So even if they want to stay right where they are with their families and not move, uh, they can go and get a much you know, higher level position or a better paying position and, uh, and leave the one that they're in, even, even if there isn't a lot of other hospital systems surrounding them. So that's put a lot more pressure on making sure that we are keeping our staff at a market level salary-wise, mm-hmm. because now we're not, just com- um, we're not just competing with uh, Central New York, we're competing with the whole country. Wow. Yep. That's absolutely right. Chuck? No, I agree with uh, I agree with Susan. The world's changed. You know, we're hearing about this great resignation that's happening right now across the country, not just healthcare, but um, not just healthcare IT, and we're we're experiencing it as well. Uh, as Susan said, there's there's um, offers coming from you know organizations like Mats that are we can't match. You know, they're thirty, forty, sometimes fifty percent higher. Uh, in salary, and uh, the person gets to to basically not have to move, live where they are, uh, and we can't compete with that in in healthcare right now. So it's a, a certainly a huge challenge for us. It's actually, I think, strained the relationship somewhat uh, between organizations like Matt and and healthcare organizations. Um, I know when I lose somebody to maybe uh, you know pick a pick a a, a company. Um, I may be not inclined to use them uh, from that standpoint, even though we don't have a relationship now and don't have a, um, uh, a contract that, you know, has uh, non-hiring types of language in it. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it just gives me a bad taste when they start poaching from healthcare IT. So I'm going to throw that out there right away. Uh, that's, a, that's a great topic to talk about. Chuck, have you seen the same company poach uh, or at least try and poach or poach more than one of your, like a repeat offenders, so to speak. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And it's <laughs> been, yeah, it's been independence and also the, the big ones, you know, when you talk about the Accentures, the Price Waterhouse, the Deloitte's they're after it as well. They're starting to build out, um, you know, supplemental staffing programs. They see, they see there's a business there. Uh, they want to get into it much more than they have. They used to do more strategy work, but now they're actually competing in this market as well with Galen and other uh, organizations. So uh, it, it, it is, um, you know, we used to have a symbiotic relationship where we're trying to help each other out. And I, I think it's still there, but I think it's going to get strained in the future. Can you imagine a scenario where down the road they're offering you someone that they poached from you? As a contract worker, at, at fifty dollars an hour higher than we were paying him, right? Mm-hmm. Crazy craziness. This is uh, lots of good stuff to talk about, Matt. Um, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, from the perspective of the the vendor, we we especially when we have a relationship with a client, we've done work. We'll we'll always try to avoid poaching, as as you said, Chuck, and we'll always try and build those relationships so we can either avoid that or find other sources. But based on uh, some of the things Susan and, and Chuck both said, the the being able to be remote is certainly changed significantly in the last two, three years. Uh, the majority of our, our work is done at home or in an office where travel is reduced. So it does offer more opportunities and ability to, to do things at a, at a 
lower total cost, which is um, always good. Um, and there is sort of an urgency that I've seen lately with the timing. Uh, things seem to be a little bit more transactional. Uh, opportunities come up. They're often very unique opportunities, looking for unique skill sets. Uh, and like so many projects, it's starting very soon and we need people in a, in a short time frame to be turned around pretty quickly. Chuck, um, if if someone had uh, left in this type of scenario to go to a vendor um, and they say, come back in six months and say, I made a mistake, I want to come back, how do you generally look at that kind of a request? Uh, in the past, I, I not favorably, but now, yeah. I mean, if that person was, you know, a, a good worker, you know, really good, high productivity, talented, um, you know, collaborative, fit in with the culture of the organization, left for the money, realized, you know, the money wasn't all in, you know, all it, and wanted to come back because missed the team. Um, you know, we've all made mistakes. We've all, you know, had regrets. And I uh, would definitely, I would definitely welcome, welcome them back. Um, at, at that point, I think now you have a, a really committed and engaged employee because they, they saw the grass was not greener on the other side. Um, and uh, you probably have a long-term employee from that point forward. So be happy to do it. So very forgiving on that end, but not quite as forgiving on the, the poach, the poachers end. No, you know, they, I mean, no, the vendors, you know, they're out there to make money. They're out there to grow, but they're also out there to support the customer. And to me, that's not a, a good play. Um, I would rather see them, you know, uh, work with colleges and things like that and STEM programs. And, you know, it's kind of like the epic way of hiring. You know, they go into these schools and they get the 21 and 22 years old and train, train them up. And that takes a while and that costs money. But now you're adding to the workforce. Um, we're looking to do that with UNR here uh, with their STEM program. That's one of the strategies we have in play right now. The vendors should be doing that as well, rather than you know the easy way of throwing money at somebody and pulling them out of a uh, healthcare organization and causing pain. Susan, do you do you feel the same way? Yeah, um, I I'll be honest. I haven't had that happen to me very often, at least not recently, where a vendor that I've worked with has come in and uh, solicited one of my employees. It hasn't been a real issue for for me. Uh, one issue that I had not recently was I would be working with a recruiter. He would bring in um, some of my staff for me and then re-recruit them out of the organization. Now, when I found that, that person is never, ever, ever used again. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think that's highly unethical. But I haven't really seen um, my vendors uh, sort of tapping my employees uh, on the shoulder very much. Yeah, and, and I don't want not to get too far into the weeds on this, but you could have a case where um, the employee is the one that went out and sort of made first contact, so to speak, uh, as opposed to the vendor coming in and approaching them. And if you never got to that level of information, you wouldn't really know. I don't know if that would affect how you feel about what went about what happened. But um, anyway, let's leave that. Let's leave that there for now. I want to move on a little bit. Um, and Susan, I'm going to start with you on this. What types of projects lend themselves to outside help? Um, are there some that don't? And what types of technical know-how are most in demand but usually lacking in-house? 
Uh, well, as far as the ones that I usually reach out for, uh, oftentimes for us, it's uh, if somebody leaves very suddenly and it's the type of role where we can't have it vacant. We actually have a situation going on right now where one of our best people has given their resignation. So in that kind of a situation, do I reach out to bridge the gap between when they leave and when the new person comes? Yes, mostly because I have way too much going on to have that position vacant even for five minutes. So, so mm -hmm. that's one area. We, um, we reach out a lot for trainers. Uh, we don't, our training staff isn't quite as robust as it should be. We've actually hired two more people, so we're getting there. But training is something we've had great success with. So we had a situation where we just had an onslaught of brand new uh, providers come in. And uh, we didn't have enough provider trainers, so we brought in uh, a, a woman uh, for like six or seven months to just help us get over that uh, that gap where we didn't have enough people and it was very successful now also large projects so if you're implementing uh, an erp or an emr um, or some large scale projects then absolutely for sure we would be outs outsourcing um, a lot of that um, the types of things I try to keep in house are things that uh, where you need a lot of institutional knowledge and it would just take too long to get a consultant up to speed on what we're doing. And then we try to cover that kind of stuff in house. So I do it a little bit differently because by the time we get them up to speed, it may be at the point where we don't need them anymore. In types of technical know how that are most in demand, but usually lacking in house. Um, security is a tough one. It's really hard to find security people. I have one spectacular security person that we use, but he's overwhelmed and I need new ones and they're expensive. Um, so, so that's, that's a tough one. And also certain part, we have Epic and certain, um, certifications in Epic are hard to find. Uh, for example, Healthy Planet, we've been struggling with that one. Uh, so some of the kind of niche sort of applications within um, Epic, it, it's hard to get people here who are certified. You mentioned uh, deep, uh, in some areas, they need that deep in-house institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. Can you give me some examples of, of, that come to mind? Um, we have, uh, we were uh, delving into Community Connect uh, recently with uh, an outside large physician um, uh, practice. And there's a lot of just in just just uh, unique uh, situations within the relationship and within the community that I think it would be really difficult for somebody to come in off the street and be able to kind of figure all of that out. It's a lot of politics and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You really need to know the background and the history, which is probably 20 years of history. So that would be an example. Very good. Chuck? Yeah, all, all those things that Susan mentioned, um, great examples. You know, we're running into the same uh, types of issues from a uh, the way I look at it as well, too. Consultants work really well when you have a, a project that has a start date and an end date, right? Because right. you don't yeah. want them there forever, uh, um, except in one area, which I'm going to mention in a second. But anything that has a start date, end date, where you need to supplement um, your own staff to get the project done within a certain timeline. That works really well. Uh, they can hit the ground running um, so you can get started quickly. Um, the one area that uh, seems to be 
more and more prevalent is on the managed services side, though, for kind of the, the maintenance work, um, tier one, even into some tier two support, which is, you know, help desk handoffs to make changes to some application, whether it's Epic or, or others. Um, you know, it's work that your, your own staff, I mean, they do, but it's not as exciting as project work. So one of the things I'm starting to see is more and more consulting being done on kind of that maintenance work um, that frees up your own staff to do the more exciting work, which is the project work. Uh, and from an engagement standpoint, employee satisfaction standpoint, uh, again, you're trying to keep your people, right? So you want to keep them excited. Uh, offloading some of that maintenance stuff that's not very exciting is, is a strategy I'm starting to see across a lot of healthcare organizations right now. I think one of the things I find myself up against um, when speaking to my managers and directors is there's definitely uh, an issue for the managers and directors about consultants coming in and making a lot more money than they are. Um, and this comes up all the time here when we bring in consultants like, you know, you know, why is it we can't get new FTEs, but they have no problem, you know, paying a consultant this large amount of money to come in and take over the project. So, Chuck, I don't know if that's something that you hear about, but it, it's brought to my desk quite a bit. Yeah, I think you have to have it as part of the program. If you just bring somebody in, like you, you mentioned, like somebody leaves. So you bring somebody in and then you don't hire. That, that replacement, right? You just keep that individual for two years at, you know, whatever they are, 140 bucks an hour, instead of hiring somebody. Yeah, you're going to, you're going to have issues. But if you bring somebody in, even if it's a higher rate, but they're doing the work that your staff does not want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, I find that to be a different story. Yep. yep. Matt. Yeah. To, to touch on a couple of those points, um, Chuck earlier mentioned, I think as clear as we can define scope, starting point, endpoint, and deliverables, the work that's being done, the, the more successful that project is going to be ultimately. And that also with talking about the different uh, skill sets, there's you know what you might call strategic work that could, as Susan described, helping uh, interpret and make that move to community connect and understanding understanding all the bits and pieces and the players and just the complexity that goes into that scenario that's one sort of strategic skill set and then the true staff aug uh skill specific maybe it's specific to an ehr or a credential within epic that that's a completely different price point and kind of really lends themselves to those projects that chuck mentioned again where it's time bound it's it's very specific what the responsibility is um we've we've also seen uh Chuck's point about work that's sort of maybe tier two, tier three, uh, maintenance. We've been doing more of that, seeing more of that, getting more requests for that type of work, kind of a, a healthcare as a, a service or, or being able to outsource some of those repeatable tasks that it needs to be done. It's not always the most exciting work, uh, you know, when projects are out there that are gonna keep full-time employees engaged. We've done both, but I think seeing more of that uh, healthcare operations type work has has been interesting. All right. Very good. Um, Next question, Chuck, we'll start with you. Uh, Talk about some of the projects that you've reached out to staffing firms for help with, and how would you describe the experiences? Yeah. So, you know, big projects like we we did a Salesforce 
uh, implementation. We do have an insurance um, called home uh, insurance company called Hometown Health. Um, so we're using Salesforce there. Um, so on those uh, the big types of projects, uh, next year we're going to move into ERP in a big way. Uh, again, that would be another one that you would definitely supplement uh, your staff with some uh, consultants. It's very specific knowledge that you need. Um, and, um, and it's capital projects as well. That's another important point. You know, when you bring people in, are you spending OPEX dollars or capital? Capital certainly depreciated over many years uh, where uh, OPEX hits your bottom line right away. So you have to be careful and and uh, where you're going to use consultants because they are the highest price resource. So you want to focus more them on capital, big capital projects than you do on the OPEX side uh, for the most part. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, and that's, you know, Epic implementations, EHR implementations, things like that uh, lend themselves well for consulting. Again, can be very expensive, but, you know, your chance of success is much higher than trying to do it yourself. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. I think this one we've been doing pretty well for years. Um, the key is, you know, when do you get rid of those consultants after you go live? When does uh, stabilization uh, change into um, standard support and optimization. And that's when you have to, you have to, uh, you know, move to your own team versus the, the consultants at that point. Susan. Yeah. Um, I would speak to a lot of what Chuck's just said. Um, what I've had a tendency to do in the past is bring in consultants to work on the day-to-day -day lights on legacy systems and move my team onto the new product. Uh, and the reason for that is if you do it the opposite way, all of that knowledge walks out the door at the end of the project. And now you've got a team who's been working on <laughs> the legacy product and they don't know anything about the new product. So if your people were uh, part of the build, especially with an ERP or an EMR, they're going to understand it a lot better going forward. So I like to take the burden of the old system off of them, bring in the consulting company to do the legacy. And in some cases also, to augment uh, what I really need for the new project as well, because my staff is going to be very new at this and I can bring in some experts to sort of help them guide the way through the implementation of, of whatever that uh, new product is. Now, as far as my experience, I have absolutely both good, very, very good and very, very bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, what can you tell us? And with, you don't have to name any of the companies you worked with, but when things have gone bad, was it a function of uh, maybe earlier in your career and you you then had with those experiences, you learned how to do it better? Um, or was it just simply the, the vendor you chose to provide those services? It just didn't work out. Um, or maybe the blame is half and half or shared. But what are your thoughts about when it didn't go well? Why it uh didn't go well? Well, I can certainly speak to that. In this particular um, uh, experience that I'm thinking about, it was a company that I had done a, a ton of excellent work with, and um, they were taken over by another company uh, after the contract was signed. If it was before, we would definitely not have gone with them. And the leadership immediately changed at that point. And um, there was very little attention to bringing in quality staff members. So that was the, the one that really comes to mind uh, where we had signed the contract. 
we thought we were going to get, a, if, if that company had stayed as it was, we would have gotten excellent service because we had used them for years and they were great, but they were taken over at the last minute and the, the new leadership was not focused on healthcare IT at all. So it was very unfortunate. And there's, as a CIO, there's not much you could do about that, I would imagine. I mean, you, you want to, is there any way to guard against that, either contractually or in any other way? Um, well, the only thing you can do, and what we did do, is when we were given subpar consultants, uh, we immediately went to them and had them switched out. So we didn't waste any time uh, trying to train them or you know uh, do anything like that. We went to them and said, "This person we can already tell is not going to work out. You need to send someone else. You need to show us their." bio to make sure or their, you know, whatever resume to make sure that they have just the right experience. Cause some of the people you're sending, uh, do not. Yeah. There's the, um, there's the bus analogy I like to use with consulting firms is you, when you bring them in, you never, you don't let them drive the bus right. because they'll take you wherever they want to take you. Right. And you don't let them sit in the back because it's too close to the exit door and they'll jump whenever things get bad or they'll start pointing fingers and blame you. So you've got to figure out a way how to put them in the middle of the bus and be part of the team um, as opposed to either end of that scale. So any, any advice on how to get them in the middle? Well, you just, your team has to be engaged and I've seen a lot of implementations where it's like, Ooh, we brought in all these experts. Let's then let them implement it. And you have as an IT organization or even operations for your health system they don't take ownership of the project, right? It becomes an IT project or it becomes the consultant project leading it, the consultants leading it because they're the most knowledgeable. So it comes down to an ownership. If you do that, um, you know, they're going to drive that bus. And what they're going to do is every time they need something, they're going to hit you with another SOW for however amount of money they want. And, um, you know, you'll never be able to get rid of them at that point because they're, they're your bus driver. Matt, where do you want to be on the bus? Yeah, we, we, I think Chuck's right. Being in the middle, being a part of that team is really the place we like to be because it, it demonstrates that value and right. Not, not driving, not jumping out the door. Um, but we've been part of these, these big projects as groups change. And as Susan said, we, we want to be there to support those existing systems allow the current team to go and work on the next thing, keep them engaged and let them be a part of that design and implementation and delivery process. Um, and then on the, on the much smaller side, being, being there to provide very specific application expertise and being able to work with providers or, or the IT team to, to make sure that that service is complete and delivered with satisfaction. And then kind of in the middle seems to be maybe application implementations where you're working with that client team again to provide uh, expertise on how to get it into the user's hands, but then also uh, bringing application expertise to, to know the right way to set it up to maximize utilization right out of the gate. So being in that middle seat is really, it's, it's ideal because it demonstrates the value. Well, let's go with the bus analogy a little bit more, Matt. Uh, if if like I'm it. sure you've had, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna beat this one, Chuck, because it's good. Um, I'm sure you've had customers that have wanted you to be in either the front or back of the bus. And they've said, "Here's how we want we want either we want you to run the thing, 
or yeah. or whatever. Um, do you push back on that? Will you say you might think that's in your own interest, but it's really not? And here's kind of the better way to approach it. Yeah, and I think a lot of times being working as a partner in collaboration with longer term clients is always the best place to be because we understand how to set the right expectations, make sure they understand what they and their team are responsible for and avoiding the sort of the transactional, I don't want to say one-off, but you know, just there to provide a service. We can do that, but being in those partnership roles where we truly understand what the need is, how to work with their, their group and their players, um, you know, pushing back is, is part of what we're asked to do oftentimes to set realistic expectations and provide that, that view that they may need that is provided to us from working with a number of different groups and seeing it done in different areas and, and knowing what's going to be, um, what's going to be best received by, again, by users, by staff, by, by the folks who are going to use the system. Yeah. It's a gr- go, uh, go ahead. One second, Susan. I just want to say that uh, I think Matt, your comment pushing back is part of what we're asked to do. And that's with the, let's say the enlightened customer. Um, perhaps some of them are, sure. uh, don't quite enjoy pushback, but it's what you have to do, I think, to be successful. Yeah. Uh, Susan, go ahead, please. I was just going to say that um, just to speak to what Matt said, I think the best relationships with consultancies are when they're viewed as the trusted advisor and it's a partnership. Um, I think that's when it works. I don't think they should be running the project. I think they should sort of be standing up there with those people running the project, kind of whispering in their ear and kind of giving them the, the expert advice that that's needed. And I think that's when it really works. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. All right. Uh, next question. Um, let me start with you on this one, Matt. How, how do you think... Sure. Um, health systems should go about selecting the right firm for a particular project? Um, and how do they go about, you know, figuring out who to go with and, and reviewing those choices? And yeah. what's a good process that you think works? Well, we've, I, we feel we've earned some best in class rankings over the last number of years. And we put a lot of focus on providing the best possible resources, which result which which drive results the best resources for the job are gonna work with those folks on the client side with with the cios and the folks out there to to really make sure their needs are being met um understanding as i mentioned before expectations right out of the gate i think is a big part of it uh susan mentioned before reviewing resumes even things like that i think go a long ways to building trust um and making people feel that they're a, a part of this process. Um, we, we've seen a lot a lot of requests come in, opportunities come in based solely on best-in-class rankings or referrals of that nature between um, peers, other CIOs out there. Uh, but a lot does come down to the history and previous experience, skill set, um, we've certainly been in a position, I, I don't always like to say no to things, but when there are things that are too far outside what we're good at, it, it's a hard decision, but it's often the right decision for uh, the client. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Chuck? Yeah. So this is an interesting one. I've tried, you know, I've been a CIO for many, many years, so I've tried different ways. And I do know 
most of the vendors out there, I've worked with them in the past and they've changed leadership and ownership. Some, there's a lot of M&A activity, but um, what I started doing and is an RFP. And, um, and, and it gets back to kind of what Susan was talking about with trusted partner. It's not so much picking them based on price, although that's important. That's part of the weighting and the scoring that I do. But I'm, I'm really looking for that partner. Um, and it's not just I'm doing an RP to pick one because um, uh, you don't want all your eggs in one basket. But I'm, I'm doing an RP to pick maybe three, maybe upwards of even five that now I have, you know, MSAs of and I can use either one of them and I can have them compete against each other. It's a little bit easier having three or four trusted partners compete against each other for resources versus the 30 or 40 that are out there that do, you know, this type of work. And they're all after your business. I tell you, for me, it's so much easier once I do the awards to the three, four, five, whatever it is, any new company that comes in, I say, hey, you've got to wait another year. Um, you know, we've got these that we're working with over the next year. And again, we can extend. So a lot of times you you end up with the same partners for many years. If they don't prove themselves, then you can throw one of them out, do an RP to bring one of them in and um, you get your team involved in the scoring. So they get to meet the people. It's a little longer process, um, but I've, I've been finding it very valuable for the team and, and um, really uh, understanding, you know, what the organizations are all about that you're trying to bring in and partner with. And then also um, you get to know their people right away. And also you can kind of work on things like poaching and, and, and that kind of stuff and really get into what it means to be a partner. So um, that's, that's been uh, very successful. I'm actually about to start one uh, here as well. Um, I've been working with the, the legacy consulting firms that we've had here, but um, we're having issues with some of them. And I think it's time for me to do that here. Chuck, you know, when you've been around for a couple of years, as you've been, you know, a lot of people, you've worked with a lot of individuals, you work with companies too. A lot of times, good individuals have moved to another company where they're yeah. offering the same type of service. So do you put stock more in individuals or companies? Do you follow Jim or Sally and now, now you follow them wherever they go and use them? Or do you stick with the company, even though the people may have turned over? No, I, I think at the staff level, I stick with the company because it's your account management team, right? And, and all the way up to the CEO, that's that's the relationship that you built. You didn't build a relationship with one, any one consultant. Maybe your team has, and they'd want to use that person from another organization, but it's really about the relationship at the higher levels. And, you know, when you had issues, how did they react? Um did they fix it right away? Um, you know, are they, you can tell organizations that are all about the money versus organization that are all about the service. It's pretty easy. Uh, and uh, in this day and age, there's a lot of money to be made right now in consulting because um, we are having such a high turnover rate and we need consultants. Um, and people, some organizations are taking advantage of that right now and some are not. And the ones you want are the, the ones that aren't taking advantage of it. Uh, they actually do want to partner with you. You mean in terms of rates or in terms of the poaching or both? In terms of rate, quality of people, uh, bait and switch. I've run into that a few times where 
you're about ready to bring in a project manager and boop, they say, oh, you know what, this person's not available anymore, even though you're just ready to sign them. And then you find out they're over at another organization that's doing a bigger implementation than you. And it's a longer term project with a higher uh, total dollar amount. Right. And so, you know, to put two and two together, to figure out what just happened there. Yeah. And all these things have an effect long term on, on the relationship. Oh, it does. Uh, you do that once. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm uh, probably not going to use you again. So, yeah. Susan? Well, for um, larger scale product uh, projects, I normally do check the class uh, research first uh, because what I find is I certainly have. Uh, certain consultancies that I use over and over again, but they're all changing hands left and right. And so sometimes you can't figure out who's who anymore. So I like to check that periodically if I'm going into a new project to see who's still best in class and still doing well for professional services and things of that sort. For my smaller projects, uh, like Chuck, I've been doing this for a long time and I have relationships with certain firms and I tend to use them because I know I can trust them. And the biggest thing is I have a master service agreement and don't have to spend hours and hours and days and days working with the legal department to get that signed. So um, if they're still doing a good job and I have an MSA, I'm likely to go that route as well. Um, but generally going to class, I'll do an RFP if it's a bigger project. But outside of that, for the smaller things, I go to my my go-to consultancies that have done me right in the past. Very good. All right, Susan, let's stick with you. This is There's a lot here, so I'm going to read it and then you can jump in. You don't have to take it all on if you don't want to. You can pick where you want to go in. Talk about creating a contract. Uh, you mentioned a master service agreement for staffing firm help. What do you want in there? What do you want to make sure is not in there? And we talked about the bait and switch. How do you ensure you get the caliber of consultant that you would expect it? How do you address it if you don't? How do you guard against costs getting out of control? And do you ever go into a staffing agreement wanting the option to hire the individual or individuals if it's a good fit? And do you want to ensure the staffing firm cannot hire away your in-house talent, which Chuck mentioned, but we didn't talk about making that contractually unpalatable for them. Um, but Susan, anywhere you want to jump in there? Yeah. So um, how do you ensure the caliber of the consultant? Um, one thing that I always build into these contracts, especially the larger ones, like if you're implementing an EMR, is that um, if for whatever reason, the person does not live up to your expectations, that you are able to release them and get replacements in a very short window of time. And I have built that into contracts, uh, large scale contracts many times. Um, how, do, how do I guard against costs getting out of control? Well, you've got your master service agreement and then you have your SOW and it should specify a certain number of hours on that SOW. And I have always told uh, my consultancies that I need to know, I need a warning when I'm within X amount of hours of that running out, because now I have to go back to my CFO and ask for more money, especially if I thought that was going to be the one and only mm -hmm. SOW. So that needs to be built in to say, look, I'm, I'm buying a thousand hours and I need, don't think you can just go, go into 1200 hours and not tell me and keep billing me. I need to know if that happens. So I would build that into the contract for sure. And, and Susan, you would want to know why, right? Oh, so if yes. We, if we agree sure. and, and you told me this was going to be plenty 
And you're telling me now we're going to go over why, right? A hundred percent. Yes, for mm-hmm. sure. I shouldn't have left that out. Yes, definitely. And as far as hiring their individuals, uh, many of the consultancies I work with have built into the contract that you cannot you cannot um, take their staff from them, and I don't blame them. But that goes both ways. I would build it in uh, the opposite way, also to say, you know, you're not allowed to, you know, hire our staff while you're here as well. So as while you're here. So uh, Chuck, when you talk about sort of poaching, it's it's outside of. I mean, can you do much with with terms and conditions on this kind of stuff? And I would imagine any poaching, it's sort of outside whatever range you specified. Um, But then I think you were talking about in general, some of these companies coming and approaching your staff, not specifically companies you'd engaged with. But what are your thoughts, Chuck, overall? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if your employee engages another company, um, that's their right, right? Um, You know, you wish them well. I mean, they're trying to, they decide they want to get into the consulting world and stuff like that. That's not what I'm I'm talking about. That's, you know, that's their choice. But um, yeah, it's more of, of, the aspect of just coming into your, you know, organization through different electronic ways and reaching out to your people in, in different ways. Um, uh, you know, it might be through friend of a friend or things like that, but it's still poaching. Um, on these particular items, I mean, I think Susan's right on the first one, you know, the, the divorce is more important than the marriage, right? So, you know, this person comes in, they're not working out. How quickly can you get replace them? with somebody new that does work out. And that's key. That's part of the partnership in my mind. You know, everybody, you're, you're going to, there's going to be issues where you, you think you got the right person. It's just not working out. It could be culturally, might not even be talent oriented, but you need to get the person out and, and you want to give that organization a shot at replacing that person. Um, and so, you know, you give them one, now you get two in a row. Well, you know, now we've got to start looking elsewhere, but I think, you know, the divorce is more important. Um, cost getting out of control. I do a lot of fixed fee, a lot of fixed fee work now. You know, you can scope these projects pretty finite. I mean, you can figure these things out uh, and maybe, a, you know, plus or minus 5% around a fixed fee. Um, that works very well. Um, you don't have to worry so much about the overruns on that. Um, the staffing arrangement, if I go into a right to hire type of staff, you do that up front. Um, cause I, I, I still don't want a poaching type of agreement. We're only talking about right to hire for maybe this one individual or two individuals. I don't want to open it up. So now you can hire my people because I'm hiring you, you do it up front. Maybe the language you use is that, you know, this person needs to be, this consultant needs to be with you for six months before you can hire. So, you know, the company can make a, a profit on an individual. I'm all about, you know, fair business practices. Uh, maybe it's a little bit higher rate. Maybe it's a finder's fee, a percentage of their first year salary or something like that. So you can work those in, um, you know, if you want to do that. But you certainly want to be want to be fair. Matt, um, obviously, you you come into these agreements on the other side. Um, but what are your thoughts about what makes for a good and fair contract yeah. for, the, for the health system? Sure. No, I think a lot of good points made by both Susan and Chuck. We've we've always tried to be easy to do business with and having a smart MSA in place, um, outlining those terms, spending a little extra time, as Chuck said, thinking about what the divorce might look like to ensure that the marriage does go well. Um, we've always tried to include 
language around replacing staff and that's at the the client's right to request and and make those uh and make those requests which i think is completely fair and reasonable um we don't do a lot of right to hire it doesn't come up that often for us um and i think that's because we tend to be less of a staffing more of a consultancy that tries to build that internal knowledge and really provide value in that way um and Again, to Chuck's point, we've also done a lot more of the fixed fee stuff. Uh, we know, you know, again, that's being able to do that is a reflection of a good partnership a lot of times. So we know what you're looking for. We have expectations. We have um, a history working together. So it makes it easier for us to make those proposals for the client to accept them and then to have a, a great uh, outcome of that project. One more that I wanted to add is risk sharing. Um, and uh, we don't do this quite as often, but I think it can be super effective. If you're bringing in somebody to say, reduce length of stay, uh, you can build into the contract some risk sharing to say, well, if, if you accomplish X, then you will be paid this. If you do not, you'll be paid a lot less, if not anything. So I, I think that's super effective, but that has to be the right kind of project. Great. All right, great. Uh, let's do our Ask a Co-Panelist, my favorite segment. Um, Matt, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Um, I can ask Chuck. I was thinking about, we've talked a little bit about partnerships and, and you know, moving away from that transactional sort of relationship. Um, have there been strategies that you've used that you've thought have been really beneficial at building strong partnerships? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually do a, a, a seminar. I've gone around to different um, uh, consulting companies and, and uh, do a kind of a lunch and learn uh, with their sales staff. And I don't do it from the standpoint of trying to teach them sales. I'm not a salesperson, mm. but I, I come from the uh, perspective of being an expert buyer, which Susan and I are both are. We're expert <laughs> buyers. It's services and products, not salespeople. Yeah. So it's a little different approach. So I try to bring them into my world of, of a CIO world and my schedule and, and things I like and things I don't like. And, um, that seems to resonate with them. So I don't get silly emails and cold calling and, you know, all the kinds of things that drive CIOs crazy. Um, so that, yeah, so that, that's what I would try to invest in would really to, to talk to CIOs and your partners that you already have, right. You have partner CIOs and ask them what draw them into what, what why did they pick you? versus everybody else that's out there, right? And they're doing it from a buyer perspective, not from, it's not that you sold them on something, it's you, something resonated with them from a buyer perspective, you know, trust, integrity, you know, all those types of things that we're all looking for uh, in a partner. So, I mean, I could go on and on with this because I do uh, teach us some of this stuff, but um, that would be one one thing that I would do with your your current CIO partners. That's great. Thank you. All right. Very good. Susan, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, actually, either. Um, Matt, I think you do a lot of this already at, at Galen, but um, what are what is everyone doing as far as keeping their staff happy with, uh, are you going completely remote or hybrid sort of a model? Uh, this has been 
sort of a bone of contention in many hospital systems. I'm a big advocate of a flexible work uh, schedule and uh, work from home, but healthcare has really been slow to kind of uh, engage in that sort of a situation. So I was wondering what you're doing. I mean, for, for us, I, I don't want to say it's easy because it's not, but it was a little bit easier having the majority of our staff already working in a remote capacity. Okay. Travel has started to open up a bit. I think some people are very anxious to do that, to go see people and see the world again. Um, but I think we are at a little bit of an advantage. And the, for the offices we do have, we've made no... Um, we, we've put no onus on folks to say, here's going to be the requirement or the recommendation, but I think it is a little bit easier for us as opposed to a, a healthcare group or a healthcare organization. Mm -hmm. Chuck, what about you? Yeah. So, so Matt, this will be to Matt as well. Just, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing and we're actually doing uh, is these professional employment organizations and um, you know, you're hiring outside HR company. Uh, they're still your employee. You can hire from all 50 states. They do all the recruiting and onboarding, um, even the health insurance programs. And you pay the individual at the prevailing rate of the state that they live in. Uh, we're doing that now. We're getting a lot of success and actually not having to use as many consultants uh, because we can get people from all 50 states. Right. Um, and uh, that, that seems to be working uh, quite well for us. Um, when you guys are sitting around your leadership room, you know, what do you, you know, based on things like that, how are you transforming the way you guys are going to do business in the next two years uh, based on where we know we're going right now with the workforce, but also some of the plans that people put in place to still, you know, try to save money and not use as many yeah. consultants. So where, where are you guys going from a strategic perspective? Yeah, that that's an interesting point. I think on the on the professional services or professional staffing sort of agencies, that's an interesting perspective because we've seen a lot of uh, downward pressure on on rate to do things uh, a little bit more efficiently. And we've certainly have had some hardship requests. You know, as you were saying before, fewer uh, fewer procedures, less revenue makes it tougher, but they still have a need for a project, um, and then. In terms of trying to plan for the future, whenever I talk to folks like yourself, CIOs and, and folks who are in these positions, it, it often comes down to a couple topics that we've touched on. There's there's security risk, uh, risk associated with those things. Um, there's user, provider, patient satisfaction. And then there's kind of the bottom line. So budgets aren't necessarily expanding tremendously uh, from an IT or a, a, an IT budget perspective. So what I've been thinking a lot about is how to help either from a staffing perspective or solution design perspective around things that'll that'll help do more work at a, a, a lower cost. So things that will help, you know, technology that help might maybe like RPA or things like that, where we can supplement or do more with with less things like that, sort of the technology technology aspects, the digital transformation aspects that will allow you to maybe free up the staff that you've got, allow them to focus on other projects, but either keep the lights on or continue doing these other projects through programmatic means. 
All right. Um, very good. Let's uh, let's go with um, one second here. Just wanna... Okay. Let's go with our last word. We uh, just have a few minutes left. So I just want to get a final thought from everyone, sort of a, a parting, parting piece of wisdom. Um, picture you're talking to a CIO at a health system that uh, has need for external help. Um, maybe hasn't had the best success with that in the past, has had some struggles with some of these arrangements working out. What's your best piece of parting advice, Chuck? Uh, I would say, you know, from that standpoint, again, I, I talked about that RP process. And again, when I say RP, a lot of, you know, you get deer in the headlight looks like, the, oh, my God, this is going to take six or eight months. And, uh, you know, all these resources. And if you can do it really fast. I mean, there's ways you can do it quickly. You don't have to be conformed to a certain process. But that's what I would do is because that allows engagement with your team, because it looks like in this particular situation, it's just not working out. Um and you do want to get to that partnership situation. So you can put a lot of language in there around partnership and what that means. And, and again, what I like is it gets my leadership team engaged. So it's not me picking uh, the consultant because quite frankly, I'm not working with them, right? It's my team that's working with them. Those are the people that need to um, create those relationships. So going through an RP with four or five different vendors or, or actually more vendors cutting it to four or five, um, gets them knowledgeable about what's out there in the market and how these firms do business makes them much more uh, engaged in that process of selecting consultants. So the chances are you're gonna you're gonna make the right choice on the partner and on the the consultant themselves. So that's a very good practical specific piece of advice. So thank you for that, Susan. Your parting piece of wisdom. Yeah, I would agree that making an RFP, if you do need one, a uh, group experience and getting uh, everybody's input on that rather than doing it uh, yourself. But the one thing I do want to say is as far as staff augmentation is that we have to at this point in time, because of the high degree of opportunity that's out there for our staff members, we have to constantly be checking the uh, the national market for their skill set and giving them those you know market analysis bump ups so that they're not susceptible to walking out the door to the first you know higher offer that comes along. I think if you do that, you can really uh, control uh, the turnaround that a lot of places are experiencing. So you need to be proactive rather than, hey, I have an offer, here it is. Oh, all right, now we're going to meet that offer. That mm -hmm. doesn't have the same effect. Make sure that you're constantly keeping up with the Joneses when it comes to salaries, and then you won't need mm -hmm. that staff log down the road. Matt, we'll give you the last word. Sure. Um, I, I'd go back to that notion of being a good partner. Uh, oftentimes, these relationships will start in a transactional way where there's a very specific need, but um, really being able to understand uh, strategic goals or initiatives that are going on and, you know, feel free to speak with other partners of ours, other, other clients, other organizations who use and rely on us. There's class commentary and rankings out there. Um, we've made staff available. The, the thing that I found, again, is the most beneficial is that understanding of what those shared goals are and how the the health system plans to move forward and and be successful 
with with those projects. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today. Fantastic discussion. Really a lot of very specific practical advice in the discussion today for people to take uh, and go away with. Uh, regarding th continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this webinar is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our fantastic panel, Susan Carmen, Chuck Podesta, and Matt Woodside. I want to thank Galen Healthcare Solutions for making the event possible and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.